And now, it's First and Goal with your host, Big Bear and the Curtain Guy. Welcome back, college football friends, foes, and fanatics. I'm the Curtain Guy, Cole Shooty. I'm Big Bear T. Tyler Bansky. And coming back for his encore performance is Will Cockrell. Will, glad to officially meet you and glad to have you on the show once again. Thanks for having me back. You know, I, I think after last week's performance with all my wonderful uh, predictions, uh, I'd be thrown to the wolves. But, you know, y'all are gracious enough to bring me back for one last try. Yeah, I think he brought you back to fight over those Ohio State picks you were talking about. Alleged, alleged Ohio State slander. I did. I did have to text Tyler and tell him that you know we're going to have to reconsider having him back on the show after that. But... <laughs> no, well, the best part about this show is our mantra is throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. So you're fitting right in. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, as always, we have a ton to discuss. So let's get right to it. Last night, we got our first college football playoff rankings of the 2022 season. And while in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really mean much, being the degenerates that we are, we're going to nitpick them anyways. So here's what we have. Coming in at the number one spot is Tennessee. Number two is Ohio State. Number three is Georgia. And number four is Clemson. The four that are currently on the outside looking in are number five, Michigan, number six, Alabama, number seven, TCU, and number eight, Oregon. Will, let's get this playoff party started with you. What are your initial thoughts about these rankings and potential matchups? And is there anything that surprises you? Well, my first reaction is that this is going to be flipped on its head after this weekend. I mean, Tennessee and Georgia are playing 3.30 Saturday. It's, you know, has anybody been expecting this game? It's going to be great. Uh, Athens, Georgia is going to be lit up with with scoring and great college football. This is what we get up for. Um, so I think the real first rankings will be next week, even though last week I may or may not have said that November 1st is the first time, the best time to release things. Um, but I was honestly shocked that Clemson was ranked number four. Um, you know, normally they get the short end of the stick. You know, Dabo likes to call it the Roy bus, the rest of y'all. And then, you know, and uh, but I, I thought Clemson would would get uh, the short end of the stick due to, you know, how they played against Syracuse, how they struggled a little bit, how they started the season. But like I said uh, to Tyler last week, you know, they were re- Remember November, they remember what you've done lately. The struggles we had in September have, have, are long gone, and all people remember is the, the great week of a uh, few weeks of games that DJ put on in the string against Wake Forest, NC State, Boston College, uh, Florida State. So, you know, and we look to get back on track next week uh, or this week against Notre Dame. Um, I also thought that it was strange that Ohio State was number two. And again, uh, here comes the Ohio State slander, Cole. You know, uh, but based on their resume, I, I just don't think they have the same as good of a resume as Georgia. I mean, Georgia crushed Oregon. Um, they've they've walked the dog, no pun intended, against everyone they've played, uh, except for Kent State, Missouri, which th- you should be punished for that. You know, can't read, can't write Kent State, you know, and, and yet they still struggle with them. And uh, uh, sorry for the two Kent State fans that probably listen to this. Um and, and, you know, and if we talk about the matchups, I think the matchups, this matchup sets up perfectly for Tennessee. Uh, Clemson struggles drastically in their past defense. I mean, just go back to 
was it week five when they played Wake Forest at Wake Forest and Sam Hartman had a field day. Um, I mean, granted, he was playing a bunch of freshmen in the back end, but five touchdowns is unbelievable. And and Sam Hartman and A.T. Perry are great, but there are no Jalen Hyatt and uh, uh, Hinton Hooker. So, you know, that, that would be tough for Clemson. And their Tennessee's rush defense is the number eight in the country. And if Clemson can't run the football, their offense is dead. So that that would be the matchup in heaven for Tennessee. I'm throwing my bias out the window. I still think Clemson will win by 40, but uh, that'd be a great matchup for Tennessee. And then the Georgia-Ohio State matchup would be very interesting. I think Georgia, Ohio State would actually get the edge there due to their edge rushers, no pun intended again, um, because that's what single-handedly won them a game against Penn State. I mean, the five-star, and I can't even pronounce his last name. Uh, yeah, if one of y'all can help me out. Uh, Tua Maloa. Perfect. That's awesome. Cool Maloa uh, had an excellent – I mean, he single-handedly won that game against Penn State. He accounted for essentially 21 points. He had a pick six. He had another interception that turned into seven points, and then he had a fumble, uh, a strip sack that essentially killed Penn State. Um, that game would be very fun to watch. But I honestly think the best matchups would be Clemson and Georgia, Ohio State, Tennessee. You get a lot of firepower in those games. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens next week. Now – uh, Will, did you know that Cole went to Kent State before you said that, or just just checking? Oh, yeah, definitely, I definitely knew that. Um, he's the one who taught me that that motto. Oh. Yeah, I was gonna say that's it's pretty impressive that you not only shit on my childhood favorite team, but you also shit on my alma mater all in one go. <laughs> <laughs> I love no, it. Bringing I, bringing us our all friendship is not here. starting off really great, Cole. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Big Bear. Bring us back. What about you? Is there anything that sticks out to you? Are there any changes that you would make to these initial rankings? Uh, yeah, the only change I'd make to the initial ranking, it's not a very popular one, but I would have kept Georgia at number one and, and put Tennessee at number three. Um, you know, I think it's just astronomically high expectations now for Georgia. You know, while detractors are going to say this is not the same Georgia team that won the national championship last year, uh, on the other side, the ones that are optimistic for this team will argue the exact same point. This is not the same Georgia team, and yet they're still undefeated. You know, let's remember how much production they lost from the defense, and they don't have those exact same playmakers on the offensive side of the ball either. So for us to be sitting here, nine weeks of football in the books, Georgia's still undefeated. Um, but not being considered the top team in the country just, just seems a bit unfair to me. I always like to say, you know, leave them there until they prove me wrong. And uh, again, he, here we go into this weekend where that's when my judgment's going to come into play. Like Will said, 3.30 Eastern time on Saturday, you got Tennessee coming to town. So if you want to be number one, there's your shot. Uh, other than that, I kind of liked where everything else was at. You know, I, again, I talked about this, Will, last week. Uh, Clemson being undefeated, I think that body of work and being undefeated kind of outweighs um, some of the other things. I know Michigan, again, it could have gone either way, but I felt like Ohio State spotted two was pretty spot on as well for me. No, and I, Big Bear, I think you're dead on with that because Georgia's still our reigning national champion, right? And, and yeah, you have those games against Missouri and Kent State that were close. But if you look at it, nobody's really been dominant 
throughout the entire season. And I talked about that earlier. There, there isn't really a 2019 LSU, a 2020 Alabama or a 2021 Georgia. Nobody's just piss pounding people every single week. You know, we, we look at this number one Tennessee team. They struggled at Pittsburgh. We look at this Ohio state team. They've struggled at times in the past two weeks against Iowa and Penn state. Um, Even you look at Michigan who they had to go to Iowa and it wasn't the prettiest win. They settled for a bunch of field goals last week against a very awful Michigan state team. So everybody has their weaknesses, but all you can ask is to continue to win, to continue to move forward. And a lot of these matchups will solve this picture for us. You guys have mentioned the Tennessee Georgia game, but we're going to get Ohio state Michigan at the end of the year. So there we're going to get answers to a lot of these questions. Again, I appreciate Will joining the show and helping Big Bear with our infamous goal line stand previews for week nine. They started in New York, where the visiting Notre Dame Fighting Irish visited the 16th ranked Syracuse Orange in the air conditionless dome. The Fighting Irish controlled the tempo of the game, utilizing their rushing game to seize the time of possession and beat the hometown Orange 41 to 24. Will, after starting the season 0 and 2, the Fighting Irish have rebounded and are now 4-1 and one in their last five. What have you seen in the past couple of weeks that gives you at least some sliver of confidence that Notre Dame has the pieces to upset Clemson in this upcoming weekend? First, that's a loaded question. Uh, you know, it's going to be very difficult for me to answer, but now I want to start off by apologizing for a future week of predictions last week, which included this game, and an even bigger whiff for the next one, but I digress. Notre Dame had the run game going very well against the Orange, and the pass game is built off the run game. I mean, if you have the defense on their heels and they don't know if you're going to run the ball up the middle or, or pass it to the big tight end, Michael Meyer, I mean, what are you going to do? And they just had their way with them. And, you know, they had, their, they had Syracuse defense timid. They had them on their heels, and there was no stopping them. I mean, I was texting Tyler during the game. I was like, well, this one's over. That prediction was bad. But uh, if the Fighting Irish can come out like Conor McGregor against anyone but Khabib or Poirier, then they have a chance. And you know how he comes out swinging. Uh, and and if they get a, if they stick around with Clemson and they they throw a couple haymakers early and and get up, I think they have a chance behind their behind their crowd. But um, the problem is that the Irish are more unreliable than trusting a fart after Taco Bell. So you never know who you're going to get. Are you going to get the Notre Dame that played Ohio State and Syracuse, you know, who really looked good. Are you going to get the, the 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 Notre Dame that played Marshall or Stanford? You know, you have no idea what you're going to get. But they need to run the ball well, as I said earlier, against a great Clemson run defense that's ranked seventh in the country. However, there there has been some some weaknesses that have been exposed by Florida State and Syracuse even last week or two weeks ago. Um, that have shown that Clemson can be run on. It's just very difficult to also pass on them in those situations. So I'm curious to see what happens. Uh, I think Clemson handles their business, but I think Notre Dame will give them a run for their money, at least for the first half. And, and my initial thought process with that is that Notre Dame would probably like to run that cover two shell that they did against Ohio State and, and CJ. But the difference is, is we've seen this year that DJ is willing and able to run the ball, which is the best offense against a cover two and guys turning your back on you. So uh, I don't really think that that's going to be their approach given that 
Uyunglele is able to do that. And I agree with you. I think Clemson's defensive front and their their front seven is one of the best in the country. And, and Notre Dame loves to run the ball. I'm not sure that they're going to find a lot of success doing that. Big Bear, on the other side of this coin, after starting out 6-0, and the Orange have lost their last two, which were arguably two of their biggest games of the season. With the ACC title game seemingly out of reach, barring some upsets, what is the new goal for this Syracuse team? What can they reasonably accomplish? Yeah, for this Syracuse team, I don't think that a 10-2 and record is outside the realm of possibilities. Um, you know, on the remaining schedule, they do still face a Florida State team that has been really good at times, but also really struggled to remain consistent. Uh, they also still have a showdown against Wake Forest, uh, a team that, while still ranked, just got brutally manhandled last weekend by a Louisville team that, Will, we talked about, Scott Satterfield, they were in dire need of a victory, and they got one. Uh, the main goal, though, for Syracuse to take into this offseason is you just got to keep furthering the development of quarterback Garrett Schrader and, and sophomore running back Sean Tucker. You know, it's important for this team to close out this year and show the country that they can rally back from this. Um, and then go into the offseason knowing you have some good pieces coming back. You know, I'd consider Syracuse to be an attractive location for some offensive transfers to consider. You know, you get a couple of wide receivers, uh, maybe some offensive linemen that are in the portal looking for a new home. That might make this offensive attack a little more lethal going into next season. Yeah, I know a couple guys that are down south, maybe in the Alabama area, that might be looking for a place to go after their coach just left. And looking at their schedule, I mean, it's reasonable. It's not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but you have games at Pitt, Florida State, at Wake Forest, at Boston College. Those are all very winnable. So I think if you're looking at it, yes, it's upsetting that you probably are on the outside looking in on an ACC title, but you could still put yourself in contention for an at-large bid for a New Year's Six Bowl game. Right, and, and to add on to that, I know like you don't want to, no small goals and you know no pity parties or whatever but Syracuse winning 10 games is unbelievable and they should be proud of that I mean with the amount of of, of resources they have and the amount of recruits that they're able to get I mean pat on the back to Dino Babers for him to be able to coach up these guys get these guys in here and to be able to, to to play at this level I mean this is unbelievable and and regardless of how they finish the season you know I, I think they do go 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 I mean that's that's excellent for for a team that's, quite frankly, they, they, they're historically a basketball school, and they're really turning that turning that narrative around. Absolutely. And we talked about it uh, many episodes ago with Wake Forest. It's about building on these seasons, right? And you got to start somewhere. So if you can end the season 10-2, and 9-3, and three, and then continue to build on that going into next year, like Big Bear referenced, that's how you start becoming a, a – consistent contender in the ACC. A Big 12 matchup was on the docket next as the ninth-ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys traveled to Bill Snyder Family Stadium to take on the 22nd-ranked Kansas State Wildcats. Gentlemen, this was a reckoning. The Wildcats jumped out to a 35-0 lead at halftime before adding some late points to buoy their margin of victory to 48 to nothing. Big Bear, I'll start with you this time. This one was surprising, to say the least. Oklahoma State got bludgeoned, posting their first shutout loss since November 28, 2009, which was a 27 to nothing loss to Oklahoma. 
what do you think is the reason for such a poor performance, specifically on the offensive side of the ball? Was it the turnovers, the defensive scheme from Kansas State, or something else? Yeah, Cole, uh, this was brutal, to say the least, especially if you're a Cowboy fan, that was brutal to watch. Uh, Will and I, when we covered this preview last week, we mentioned how if Adrian Martinez were able to start for Kansas State, this would be much closer. We knew he wasn't going to, and so we went with the latter. We took Oklahoma State, and I think we both had him with a solid 2-3 touchdown victory. Um, Vegas set the spread on this at less than one and a half, and now we know exactly why. I, I don't know how Vegas comes up with the spreads. Maybe we need uh, our good buddy Badger, Jeff, to come back here and tell us about how the betting world works again, but their models are absolutely phenomenal at times. At Oklahoma State, though, this game was pretty much out of reach by the middle of the second quarter. Half of the Cowboys' conference games this season have been on the offensive shoulders where they just had to outscore their opponents. And in their first three drives of this game, they turned the ball over on downs, which I thought was a really poor way to start this game. They were forced to punt, and then they had a costly fumble on the first play, first play of the third drive. Kansas State, on the other hand, cashed in points all of those opportunities and put them in the driver's seat early on. And it's just, you just don't come back from that, especially when you're a team that prides itself on being able to outscore your opponent. I was pretty shocked with how poor Spencer San- Spencer Sanders played on Saturday. And um, yeah, I, I just don't know. I have no idea, but hats off I mean, Kansas state bringing in their veteran backup QB to lead the way on Saturday. I mean, for a guy who has not seen a whole lot of playing time to come out and throw four touchdowns is pretty impressive from, from Kansas state. Yeah. Well, speaking of this without Adrian Martinez, the Wildcats went to their other star playmaker, Deuce Vaughn, who absolutely ate on Saturday, 22 carries 158 yards, which was good for 7.2 yards per carry a touchdown four catches, 18 yards, and another touchdown. My question to you, does Deuce deserve more attention than what he's getting? Would you put him in the same category as someone like Jameer Gibbs? Well, first off, yesterday I was walking. I was in the grocery store and uh, got to the dairy section. I saw a milk carton, and it had a a missing person report, and it was the Oklahoma State offense. Uh, And it said Spencer Sanders, Mike Gundy, and crew missing, you know call if you find them they were gone uh and i would also like to publicly apologize to all of kansas state's fans and their next of kin for thinking that a quarterback being out and a run dominant team would affect this game in any possible way when the team obviously runs through deuce vaughn deuce vaughn deserves all the credit first off for having a badass name and and second he's just phenomenal i mean he finds a way to get it done I mean, yes, he, he only had 18 yards on those four catches, but the caliber of those catches were great, and, and he scored. He found a way to get in the end zone. Uh, he's not facing the same caliber of defense that Jameer Gibbs is over at Alabama, but he shows up big for these games and dominates. I mean, it, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, he, And he's a smaller in stature guy, but we've seen proven from guys in the NFL also, like Darren Sproles, uh, that, that smaller guys can get it done. And I think I think Vaughn will dip his little pinky toe in the Heisman conversation, but I think it's a little too late for him. You know, uh, he, he, there's not much uh, 
it's not much publicity and, uh, and reporting going on in Manhattan. You know, that, at least that's what I've heard. No, absolutely. I mean, I, if you were to take Deuce Vaughn and place an Alabama jersey on him, an Ohio State jersey on him, a Georgia jersey on him, he is absolutely in the Heisman conversation right now. And unfortunately, because a lot of people are not paying attention to Manhattan, Kansas, they're not really seeing what this guy is capable of and what he brings to this Kansas State offense. Oh, yeah, and let him throw the ball a couple of times, too, in one of those jerseys since the Heisman seems to be a quarterback uh, trophy now. <laughs> I'm all for it. Our goal line stand for Week 9 took us to Happy Valley for a noon banger between the visiting and second-ranked Ohio State Buckeyes as they took on their Big Ten East rival and 13th-ranked Penn State Nittany Lions. What appeared to be a slow burner saw Penn State take a 21-16 lead early in the fourth quarter before a barrage of Ohio State points ultimately buried the Nittany Lions 44-31. to Well, for the first about 48 minutes of this game, it looked like Ohio State was in some danger of dropping before exploding for a 28-3 to run that put the game away. Are there some concerns with the stubbornness of the offensive play calling? Will some of the issues we witnessed in this game eventually come back to haunt the Buckeyes? Uh I have zero concern for Ohio State's offensive play calling, but I have a lot of concern for their run game. Ohio State ran for 98 yards against a team that gave up not one, not two, not three, but 418 rushing yards against Michigan. And if you take away that 68-yard scamper from Trayvon Henderson, they only had 30 yards rushing against an abysmal rush defense. That's what I'm worried about. They need to find a way to run the ball. That is what's going to come back upon them. Also, the, the, the thing that covers up that, that major glaring issue is the fact that they produced four turnovers. Like I said last week, I'm going to say it this week. I'll say it next week. I'll say it at my usually at my funeral. I'll come out the grave and I'll say it real quick. You cannot turn the ball over four times unless you're Clemson and win a football game. It, it does not happen. It does not happen. And especially against an Ohio State team. I mean, the first two drives, Penn State throws an interception. And then costly, costly turnovers in the fourth quarter just, just ended the game. And that's not play calling. That's just getting out physical out front. Uh, going back to the run game, sorry. Uh, that's that's just getting out physical up front. And you're not going to beat any of the playoff teams if you can't run the football. I mean, it's just it's not going to happen. Uh, you have an elite pass rusher. That can pin their ears back and wreak havoc on C.J. Stroud. I don't care who you're throwing the football to. Even if it is Marvin Harrison Jr., who is just better than you, you're not going to be able to do anything if you can't run the football. And that was a lesson that the Buckeyes learned last year, and I think they're still trying to figure it out to some extent. I do believe that they're better in that area than they were in 2021, but there's obviously still some concerns as we've seen the level of competition rise up specifically on the on those defenses that they played in the last two weeks. You're not going to learn anything in the next three weeks. It's going to look like it's fixed, but the the next true test is going to come at the end of November against Michigan, because that is a physical run heavy team. And you're going to have to be physical and, and match that intensity to win that game. Big bear for Penn state. This is now six straight losses to the Buckeyes in three out of the past five seasons where they have dropped games to both Michigan and Ohio State. So the question now becomes, 
Does James Franklin have what it takes to be a consistent threat for the Big Ten Championship? Or are the Nittany Lions doomed to play third fiddle under his leadership? That's that's a tough question. Um, yeah, it's fair to say the running joke of James Franklin bolting to any open job vacancy has its merit, as those of you who follow us all at Walk on Red Shirts, we abuse that to no end. Uh, it's it's even his best recruiting classes to this point have lacked the prowess and development needed to really challenge consistent conference titles too. You know, with the team we saw on the field Saturday and the future of that QB position, maybe even the running back position on the sidelines, you have to wonder what they have in store. But in the next two years, if that development doesn't provide that flash and flare that we're expecting to see, you know, I'd probably agree with you that Penn State will play second, if not third fiddle. I mean, at least until someone else and some new blood comes in to take command of the program, a.k.a. James Franklin would be out one way or another. Now, I want to kind of shift gears for a second because this is kind of a Big Ten problem as well. Uh, I mean, look at the standings. Four of the top five conference teams are all in the East Division. We're sitting three weeks before the Big Ten title game, and the best team of Penn State, Ohio State and Michigan looks to match up with Illinois. Uh, now, Illinois is a team that deserves our respect for the play they had on the field, but by no means is that a sexy matchup. You know, if Illinois were to even fumble the bag here in the next few weeks, then it's potentially Purdue going to Indianapolis, and that's not fun for anyone. So even look back at last year, you know, Michigan dominated Iowa a team that doesn't know what offense is right now. So the talk across the country right now for Ohio State is like the lack of strength of opponent, I guess you'd say. And I think the bulk of the conference has seriously underwhelmed, in my opinion. Cole, maybe you'd know more than me. Do you, How do you feel about the state of the Big Ten this year? It's dominated by the East. Uh, I, I believe the, the record is now 8-0 that ever since they switched from the leaders and the legends, which was hilariously bad to the East and the West, the East dominates and you see why it has the top teams in the league for a while there. Wisconsin was consistently coming out of the West and then they were a solid program, but they're on the decline and they seem to just kind of beat each other up. And it's surprising that you see Illinois kind of coming to fruition here and, and, looking like they're on the fast track to come out of the West. But if we're being honest with ourselves, as impressive of a story as it is, I wouldn't take them over Ohio state, Michigan or Penn state out of the East. And that's just what it is. Maybe you'll see a little bit of disparity when USC and UCLA come in and they switch more to like the PAC 12 has, which is the top two teams go. But even then, I think the teams that you would traditionally consider West schools are going to be towards the middle to the bottom of the pack in the Big Ten. And just to add to that, Tyler and Cole, I alluded to this last week a little bit, but this is why I think we should have divisionless conferences. I mean, look at the SEC even. It's dominated by the West historically. Now, now you have Georgia finally coming back and being a powerhouse. Tennessee, you know, we'll see if they can keep this up. But the past 10 years, 
it's been a joke. I mean, whoever play comes out of the West is going to dominate the East and, and, and win. And same thing with the ACC. It's Clemson or Florida State who are in the same division. They're going to win the ACC every single year, and whoever goes up against them is just going to get annihilated. And you remove those divisions, now Clemson has to play Florida State again. There's a little bit more on the line. Now now Alabama has to play LSU again. Now Alabama has to play, you know, they have to play Tennessee this year, but they'll have to play the other team out of the West that's really good. So, you know, same thing in the in the Big Ten. You know, Ohio State plays Michigan. Well, guess what? You got them again next week because they're the other best team in the conference. I think it, it would add so much to our game just to remove these divisions because they're so lopsided. They're, they're they're not very well put together, and it's it's funny how every single conference is like that. And I, I don't know how that could be, but it's it's every single conference. And of course, you can sit here and say that they didn't anticipate this, but. At some of them, at least coming from the Big Ten, you put the three, what I consider to be traditional powers in the Big Ten in the same division. What did you expect was going to happen? You know, and, and Will, you touched on it with Clemson and Florida State, who have dominated the past decade. What did you expect was going to happen? Those are the two teams that since the mid 2000s have dominated the league. So, of course... And you're costing your conference money. I mean, every time you don't have these these top powerhouses playing in your conference championship game, you're losing two things. Number one, you're losing that fan base coming to that conference championship game, and number two, you're losing your shot at the national to go to the playoff. And why you would do this to yourself is beyond me. And you know, we'll see what happens in the upcoming years. But I, I would see divisionless football coming very soon. I mean, there's there's no parity in this. Absolutely not. More people are going to tune in to watch. Florida State and Clemson rematch each other or Ohio State Michigan play again the following week rather than watch Ohio State line up against Northwestern or Clemson obliterate some poor North Carolina team, you know. So I agree with you. I think it's it's much needed, and I think it gives you a, a clear picture of who the true champion of these conferences are. Before we jump into our Week 10 goal line stand, we're going to take a break and catch our breath. But stick with us. We'll be right back. We here at First and Goal want to take this time to thank you for listening and provide a quick word to potential sponsors. We're looking to get your brand on our show. The First and Goal podcast, as well as the Walk on Red Shirts, is continuously growing and can help spread your brand to college football fans across the country. If you have any interest in joining us or just curious about what we can offer, Please reach out to us at Walk on Red Shirts or at Goal underscore First. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you got some water and stretched because we're about to make our final sprint to the finish line. And we start with an in-state rivalry and top 25 matchup in the ACC as the 21st ranked Wake Forest Demon Deacons make the hour and 41 minute drive down I-40 to take on the 22nd-ranked NC State Wolfpack. Some key facts and notes, this will be the 116th all-time meeting between these two programs, with NC State holding a 67-42 lead. Wake Forest won in a shootout last year, 45-42. Wake Forest is favored by 4.5, with the over-under being 54. Wake Forest is 6-2 on the season, and 2-2 in the ACC. NC State is also 6-2 on the season, and two and two in the conference. Will, we'll kick off week 10 with you. 
Wake Forest is coming off a blowout loss to Louisville that Big Bear mentioned earlier that saw one of the most lopsided third quarters in college football history. Is Wake Forest in some serious trouble of having their season slip through their fingers, or will they respond and add another top 25 win to their resume? I don't know what to do with this game. I don't know what to do with Wake Forest. uh, You start to believe. You really start to believe. And then they do that. I mean, Wake Forest had more turnovers than a German bakery. They had eight total in the second half alone. Eight. That is unbelievable. My brother once tried to fail a class. He's still got a 13. You know, you have to try to turn the ball over eight, eight times. To stick with the bakery theme, they had half a baker's dozen in the third quarter, including two pick sixes. You erase those. Wake Forest dominates Louisville. Scott Satterfield's out of there. He's hanging out with Brian Harson on the beach after their buyout. And life is normal. But last week, as we saw in multiple games, life is not normal at all in the fall during college football. However, I think Wake Forest rights the ship against an NC State team without their starting quarterback, Devin Leary, and runs away with this one in the second half. And keep an eye on MJ Morris. I watched him against that, uh, albeit uh, a reeling Virginia Tech team, but he had some flash when leading uh, the Wolfpack back from an 18-point deficit. I mean, he looked pretty good. He's got a solid arm, arm on him. He can move, and the team really rallied behind him. I think Wake Forest takes us from 42-28 to 28 against, uh, against a uh, a struggling young NC State team, but I think it'll be a good good little battle in the first half. I watched that NC State-Virginia Tech game uh, in a hot tub, so if you have never watched college football in a hot tub, I highly recommend it. But, Will, I, I agree. I was impressed with with MJ Morris. I, I, I like how he spins the ball, um, holds on to it a little bit longer than I think I would like him to, but you, you can see the talent is certainly there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll learn to get rid of the ball faster after he gets popped a couple of times. Big Bear, NC State is currently 0-2 in their ranked matchups on the season. With the injury to Devin Leary that Will just mentioned, what do the Wolfpack need to do, or rather, what can they take advantage of in this game to avoid moving that record to 0-3? Well, they need to take a page out of the Louisville playbook from last week. You know, you got to trust your running backs to scrap your yardage, and you really need to utilize the strengths on defense to get the stops you need to win in the game. A key note here for NC State, though, is they actually rank last in the ACC in sacks, as opposed to Louisville, who ranks first, and they were able to get home to Sam Hartman eight times last week. Uh, Will, you mentioned those two pick sixes, just a few of the turnovers that happened to Wake Forest, but the Wolfpack need to put Hartman under pressure uh, an area that killed him last week and could very well do so again on Saturday. And to add to that, Tyler, I mean, a lot of those sacks, I'll, I'll be, Louisville's defensive line is great. Uh, you know, as you said, they're, they're the top in the, in the conference in sacks, but that strange, wonky offense that, that Wake Forest runs with that delayed read option, if you, get, if you can get any sort of pressure on them, it's bad. I mean, I don't know if y'all remember the Clemson game from last year when Wake Forest was 13, Clemson was struggling, and, they, and Clemson just beat the absolute dog crap out of them. And what was happening was they were doing that delayed read, and the pocket was just collapsing immediately. I mean, they were tackling the running back, the, the quarterback, the coach, his mom, everyone. And that's exactly what Louisville did in the third quarter. 
I love that you mentioned that because this year's game with Wake Forest and Clemson, I was actually Cole and I were texting about that, and I mentioned the delayed read and how it was this year. It kind of seemed like it was working for Wake Forest, but you can see how when you have a team with elite edge rushers coming in on setting the edge right off the bat and even creating holes up the middle, you're screwed if you don't get that ball out quick. And so Sam Hartman going into this matchup with NC State, another team that does not allow you to run very much at all. You know, they're not going to be able to run efficiently. So another situation, Sam Hartman's going to be in the pocket. And will he be running for his life or will he have time to set his feet and make the throws? And guys, remind me that game against Clemson was Brian Brissy. Was he injured at that point against Wake Forest? No, that was the game. That was his first game back after back. his sister had passed away. Um, but the the difference in the pass rush last year from Clemson and the pass rush this year from Clemson is there wasn't much reading going on. There was no coverage in the back end. Sam Hartman, that was just window candy as he was doing a little fake handoff and the ball was coming out of his hand immediately. And our guys were on their receivers like Wyatt on Rice, you know, but not in a good way. And 15 penalties in that game. And I think 16 of them were pass interference. And it was just awful. But that's that's the difference in the game. I mean, if they can get that 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 read option, that slow, you know, little read going, and you bite on it, it's their offense is explosive. You put any pressure on, it's over. Well, and, and we talked about that game with Clemson having fa- freshmen basically, you know, as in their back seven, and and obviously, you, Will, you mentioned about how they got thrown in the deep end and and you know didn't swim too well. So, uh, um, but Louisville has elite edge rushers, like you guys said. So the one way to combat that is to get the ball out quickly. Uh, I I don't know if attacking the edges is necessarily going to work against NC State, but I think that might be their their main point of attack if they they want to stick in this one. We then make our way down to Baton Rouge, where we will get to see one of the most electric atmospheres in all of college football, a night game in Death Valley. And no, not the Clemson Death Valley, Will. The six-ranked Death Valley. <laughs> the six-ranked Crimson Tide roll in looking to keep their playoff hopes alive in a matchup against the 10th-ranked LSU Tigers. Some key facts and notes. This will be the 87th all-time meeting between these two programs, with Alabama holding a 55-26 to lead. Alabama survived at home against the Tigers last season, winning 20-14. to and have won two straight against LSU. Alabama is favored by 13 and a half, with the over-under being 58. Alabama is 7-1 on the season, and 4-1 and in the SEC. LSU has rebounded after dropping the season opener to Florida State, and are now 6-2 and on the season, and also 4-1 and in the conference. Big Bear, a common theme of this season has been transfer quarterbacks experience a resurgence in their new homes. We've seen this with names like Bo Nix, Caleb Williams, and Dylan Gabriel all finding success this season. The same can be said for LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels. What about his play has impressed you so far? What do you think he does well that could cause the Crimson Tide defense some problems in this matchup? Well, let's start with how weird it is to see Alabama sitting at third place in the SEC West this late in the season. That's haven't seen that in quite some time. It's beautiful. And- <laughs> Well, we'll see how long they last. Um, You know, Jaden Daniels coming into last season when he was at Arizona State, I 
thought to myself, and I don't know if I really verbalized this, but I thought he was one of the better dual threat quarterbacks in the country. Uh, couldn't get it done at Arizona State, so he goes and rehomes himself to LSU. And didn't start the season that great. You know, I felt like he was, you know, in deep water going to the SEC. But in the last two weeks, he's really come alive with that dual threat capability. Between Ole Miss and Florida, he's accounted for 11 of the Tigers' touchdowns, six of them on the ground, five of them through the air. Now, why is that important against Alabama? Well, the ability to run the ball effectively or even run an efficient RPO or option play is going to open up the passing game by keeping the defense honest. And Alabama is, as we say, elite against the running game. So don't expect Daniels to go putting up those numbers you saw against Ole Miss in Florida. But what I'll be interested in is how can he use his legs to extend plays and then open up downfield so that his receivers can make plays. Outside of that, it's all on the LSU offensive line to keep him upright. And if they don't, this could get really ugly. And it goes back to what we were talking about with the last game, right? About creating pressure. Jaden Daniels is not a guy who's going to stand in the pocket and deliver throws downfield. We talked about how you have to attack this Crimson Tide secondary if you want to have a chance to to win these games. We saw it with Texas. We saw it with Tennessee. Jane Daniels isn't necessarily an elite passer by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he can create some problems by getting out of the pocket and, and extending those plays, like you said. That's where they're going to find the, the success in moving the ball. But then it becomes finishing in the red zone. If he can get them down the field and they're still going to settle for field goals. You're going to ultimately end up lose that losing this game anyways. So uh, that's where my curiosity leads me to believe is I think he'll have success in, in kind of marching him down the field, but I want to see what he does in the red zone. Will turning to you, Alabama has a good, but not as elite passing game as we may have initially thought they're 34th in the country, averaging 274.4 yards per game. They're playing against a solid passing defense in LSU, which is ranked 35th in the country, giving up 204.2 yards per game. But when you flip it to the run game, there seems to be quite the discrepancy. Alabama is ranked 17th in the country, averaging almost 211 yards per game, whereas LSU's rush defense is ranked 66th, giving up 142 yards per game. Is this where the game will be decided? Or is LSU talented enough in the back seven to load the box and make Bryce Young beat them? Well, I'll answer this very quickly with a little poem for you. For all you troubadours out there, LSU is on a roll. Brian Kelly is not a troll. Alabama may have a loss, but they will show LSU who's boss. Put that one in the Louvre. Put it, put it right in there, right next to the Mona Lisa. Anyway, LSU is getting all the hype right now, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, they're playing really good football. Uh, uh, until I was reading this, I forgot that LSU had actually lost to Florida State. I forgot the famous mixed extra point. Forgot all about it. Like I said, you don't remember September. You remember November. However, what's worse than playing Alabama at Alabama, playing Alabama at Alabama with the number 66 ranked rush defense, as Cold has stated, the Tide are going to lean on Jameer Gibbs early and often and win this game against an overachieving LSU team. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't pulling hard for the upset. 
Alabama's just too much. And if they do load the box, if they do load the box and put seven or eight in there, Bryce Young is beyond capable. I mean, he allegedly still had a sprained shoulder playing against Tennessee and had so much zip on his ball. Uh, he is—he's he, unbelievable. I mean, he, he was a Heisman winner last year. Let's, let's not forget that. And if you want to put the pressure on him to win the game, then good luck. It's going to be a fun ride home back to Baton Rouge, Alabama forty-one, LSU twenty-four. And LSU secondary is talented, like I said, but they don't have Corey Raymond coaching them anymore. He's at Florida, and I, I'm with you. I think it's a dangerous game to be loading the box up to take Jameer Gibbs away. And even then I'm hesitant to say that because they'll utilize Gibbs out of the backfield and in screen plays just as much as they'll hand the ball off to him. He's a dynamic playmaker and they will find a way to scheme him up and get him in space. And I'm not sure that LSU's has enough talent or coaching to overcome that. Our Saturday showcase is quite the heavy hitter a number one versus number three matchup that pits some SEC East rivals against one another with huge playoff implications on the line. The newly minted number one Tennessee volunteers travel to Athens to play between the hedges against the third-ranked Georgia Bulldogs. Some key facts and notes, this will be the 52nd all-time meeting between these two programs, with Georgia holding a 26-23 lead. Georgia dominated last year's matchup 41-17, and has won five straight in this series. Georgia is favored by eight, with the over-under being 66. Tennessee is 8-0 and 4-0 in the SEC. Georgia is also 8-0, but is 5-0 in the conference. Well, the obvious draw in this one is Heisman leader and volunteer quarterback Hendon Hooker, who averages over 353 yards per game passing against a Bulldog secondary that ranks 13th in the country, giving up 177.1 yards per game passing. So my question is, well, I guess my questions to you are simple ones. Which one wins out in this matchup and why? Well, this is where I'm going to sound crazy. A couple of weeks ago before the Alabama game, I told uh, a friend of mine from back home, we'll call him Beans, uh, shout out to Beans, that Tennessee would beat Georgia by at least 13 points. He told me I was crazy. He told me I was asked a 10, not asked a 9. And I'm going to stand by this, and, and let me tell you why. Georgia's secondary is pretty young. Uh, they lost a lot on the back end. Georgia has not been challenged defensively all year. No offense to Tyler, but th- that Oregon offense was, was not ready to play an away game against Georgia. I mean, let, let's call it what it is. It's not a neutral site. I don't care what they say on ESPN. They played in freaking Atlanta. They played 30 minutes from Athens. It's not a six-hour, eight-hour plane ride like that Oregon had to take. It, that was an away game. And Oregon wasn't ready for that. Bo Nix wasn't ready for that. And honestly, besides the three turnovers that Bo Nix had, they could have stayed in that game. If they, if the, a lot of those turnovers happened getting into the red zone. But let me get back on track. Uh, Georgia relies heavily on the run and to get the pass game going through three dominant tight ends, which, funny enough, Georgia throws the ball more than Tennessee does. And Tennessee runs the ball more than Georgia does. Now, that that when I when I first heard that, I had to rewind what I was listening to, go back, and I had to go actually look it up myself. And it's true, Georgia throws the ball a lot, and that's because they have two dominant tight ends in Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington. They have Eric Gilbert there too, but he's 
been kind of overshadowed. I mean, Brock Bowers is the best tight end in the country, him and Michael Meyer. And and they're all Sunday caliber players. But if Tennessee and its ninth-ranked rush defense can slow down the rushing attack at all and make them work with second and long, third and long, then one, their top-tier SEC pass rush will be all over Stetson Bennett, and Jake will be so excited to be able to yell at the mailman all afternoon long. Tennessee's offense will wear out Georgia's defense, who will be without stud Nolan Smith for the rest of the season. He tore his pectoral muscle. I don't know if anybody saw that. Uh, but this one's going to be low scoring in the first half. I think Tennessee's going to take a couple haymakers from Georgia early, and they're just going to step on the gas and not look back. Tennessee will break the seal in the second half. Tennessee 38, Georgia 24. And I think a big part of it will be that that crowd. They're going to be rowdy. They're going to want to keep Georgia in that game. Um, but if Tennessee can kind of throw some some haymakers of their own and land them, I think they could get the crowd out of it fairly early, and that'll help them uh, continue to kind of push that that lead. Big Bear, the matchup that I don't think enough people are talking about is actually the Georgia passing offense that Will referenced against the Tennessee passing defense. Walk-on redshirt favorite Stetson Bennett and company have quietly put together the eighth-ranked passing offense, averaging 328 yards per game. And they face a volunteer passing defense that ranks 127th in the country that gives up 300 yards per game. My question to you is, are the Bulldogs built to keep up if this does turn into a shootout like the Alabama-Tennessee game? Or do you think Georgia will kind of switch up their style of play and try to utilize their rushing attack to control the pace of the game and avoid a shootout? I'm going to come at this from a different angle as Will, and I'm going to use some of Will's rhetoric from last week. The Great teams are going to do what they do, Will. So Georgia is going to come in and do what they do best, and that's been passing the ball. Um, we already know their running backs. They don't have the elite running backs that they've had in the past. We're not really certain if, if they're proven at that position. And then, you know, Tennessee's passing defense is its just its not really good. You know, for a team to be number one in the country, you'd think that that passing defense would be a little bit better, but they given up three to 400 yards against uh, Florida passing, you know, then they gave up that many yards to Alabama. They gave up over 300 yards to uh, over 300 yards passing to Tennessee Martin the other week. You know, if you look at points scored, uh, here's the real question is we've seen what happens to Georgia when they get tested. They're not scoring a lot of points. They got had a couple of close wins, but what happens when Tennessee really gets tested? And that's something I don't know if a lot of people are talking about because Tennessee's offense and their team as a whole has scored 34 more points every game this season. Georgia's defense has allowed no more than 22 points this entire, like per week this entire season. So what happens when Tennessee's in that little bit of a rut and needs to shoot out of that? I think Georgia's going to stick to the game plan. They're going to keep passing the ball. Sorry, Jake, with the mailman, Stetson Bennett, if he's got the option to attack it, why not? So I think that's what Georgia's going to rely on. And if they can piecemeal them together with passing the ball, maybe that opens up an opportunity to run the ball. They don't need to give the ball to the running back all night long, but if they get an opportunity passing in the red zone and, and run it on home, maybe they take it. So come back full circle from the beginning of the episode. I said Georgia deserves to be number one until we're proven otherwise. 
So I'm going to take what some people might consider the upset here. I think Georgia's going to hold on and win this. I think it'll be closer, but I think it's going to be lower scoring. I'm going to go with 30 to 27 Georgia. I like it. Now, now Tyler, I have, I have one rebuttal. Tennessee's pass defense it is putrid for every game but one. They played Kentucky and Will Levis, who is a who was a potential Heisman candidate until probably last week and a couple weeks prior. Ninety-eight passing yards given up. Is was that a fluke, or or do you think this is something that maybe they've they've found a tweak in their defense and can maybe apply it to the Georgia game, or maybe they've just gotten better throughout the year. Good question. Maybe maybe you chalk it up to a rivalry game, but also. Um, the good thing is that they weren't getting caught in a trap game. That's one thing. Sometimes you consider going into that Kentucky game, looking ahead for Georgia. Maybe you slip up. They might have focused a lot harder on Kentucky, and they got to turn around and do it again. So can they Can they uh, pull a twofer? And I think Will Levis is, is talented, but I'm not sure that he's in that elite echelon uh, of guys like Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud. And beyond that, he's not exactly throwing to top-end wide receiver talent either. Right. I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, shout out my article that just came out about why recruiting matters. Go check that out, and you'll, you can compare the amount of stars on Kentucky's roster to Georgia's. Just quick little shout-out. No, absolutely. I, I mean, you said it perfectly. Stars do matter. And we talked about it earlier with, Penn State and Ohio State. Penn State has a really good secondary, but guess what? Marvin Harrison Jr. is a stud, and he flat out was better than what they could offer with Joey Porter Jr. and company. And Georgia has nice athletes. I'm not sure that they've developed wide receivers to the length that maybe you would see it. Alabama in the past, uh, I've touched on it recently. They haven't been putting as elite of wide receiver talent out, but they're, I th- would still put them above where Georgia was. The other part of it too, that I could also see on the flip side of it, Georgia having success is that Tennessee defense is going to want to key on Brock Bowers and the other tight ends. And so that should provide some one-on-one matchups on the outside. And if Georgia wants to stick in this game and they want to get the win, those guys have to make plays. They have to beat those defenders one-on-one and, and allow Stetson Bennett to utilize it. Right. And I learned this back in high school. One of my coaches used to tell me, perfect offense beats perfect defense every time. And essentially, that's how it works. You know, how the play is drawn up, if it works perfectly, you're going to score. I don't think Tennessee can hang with Georgia if it, if it turns into a shootout. I mean... Tennessee tried to give the game to Alabama, and, they, and Alabama still couldn't beat them. Alabama couldn't do it. Now, Alabama doesn't have any world beaters at receiver like they normally do, but it's still Alabama. You still have five-star Bryce Young throwing the football, and, and you still have studs on the outside. It's not like they're, it's not like they're nobodies. Uh, and, and I just don't think Georgia has has those type of guys on the outside that can get it done and keep up with Tennessee. I mean, I think we're going to see number 11, Jalen Hyatt, a lot in uh, – uh, I forget the guy's name. Twenty-four. Uh, he reminds me of Iron Man. His last name uh, Stark. We're going. I think he's going to see a lot of Jalen Hyatt from behind uh, that game, and it's not going to look good. And I, I can see it from both sides, honestly. Uh, like Big Bear said, 
this is still an extremely talented Georgia team. And part of me wants to sit here and go, if we're pitting these two teams against each other, which defense is going to let make less mistakes at the end of the game. And that leads me to believe that it's going to be Georgia. That secondary is young, but they're talented guys like Kayla Ringo, you know, they don't, you don't just get those guys anywhere there. There's a reason he was a five-star in the number one corner on everybody's board. Um, but I, I've also witnessed what, what Tennessee did against Alabama with Jalen Hylett. And, and a lot of that was, was schemed up. They, they schemed that up for him to be open like that. And so I'm curious to see if they will be able to do that against a Georgia secondary that I believe isn't as well polished as Alabama's, but is much more athletic and, and may be able to, kind of make up for some of those mistakes later on. Let's not forget the intangibles too. Last thing I want to mention is just this is in Georgia and this is one week removed, but not even a week removed from the first playoff ranking coming out where you just slighted the reigning national champions, undefeated Georgia Bulldogs telling them they're not good enough. They're going to come into that game kind of pissed off. And so that's why I feel like they slighted them at just the right time. And I think they're trying to create a little chaos. They're getting a little bulletin board material. So I expect 100% out of Georgia on Saturday. So I have to give them my edge. That's a good point, Tyler. I didn't even think about that. That's, that's definitely on the meeting boards all over the place. Absolutely. It's going to be fun. Get your popcorn ready. Big Bear, do you want to finish it out? Sure. Well, folks, that'll do it for us here. Uh, again, we want to thank Will for having it with us for another episode. We're glad to have you here and all your witty wisdom. Uh, look, guys, Monday was the last day of October, and so that was the last day to get your breast cancer awareness gear. We did sell some gear, so we'll be happy to bring you those numbers next week and tell you what we'll be donating to the Susan G. Komen Foundation. 100% of those profits go to that charity. Um, as we progress through the season, the stakes are going to continue to rise and become more and more interesting. So you want to stick with us as we preview all of those in the weeks to come to find out who will be crowned our national champion. But until then, this has been another episode of First and Goal.